0: Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor at Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. Today we have a conversation that Kate and our other co host, Medea Ocher, had with short story writer Deborah Eisenberg about her latest collection, My Duck Is Your Duck. So unfortunately, you and Dea had actually told me how wonderful this collection was. And I was bummed that um, I both didn't get a chance to read it and didn't get a chance to speak with Debra. But can you tell us just a little bit about what um, listeners can look forward to in the conversation?
1: Well, they can look forward to how incredibly brilliant and thoughtful Debra Eisenberg is. And it was such a pleasure to speak with her. She was on a residency in marfa when we spoke mm. and actually one of the first the first story in this book is about a, a kind of residency on an island um, oh cool that, that an artist goes to that's hosted by crazy rich people um <laughs> and and all the calamities that ensue and it's really excellent and it's the title story um, okay. of the collection so i think you're gonna like this even though you weren't there sorry
0: i look forward to listening to it all right let's get to it
1: okay
2: Real pleasure to have award-winning short story writer Deborah Eisenberg with us on the phone today. Deborah is a MacArthur Fellow, so when we say her writing is genius, we are not using hyperbole. She has published four outstanding short story collections, including transactions in a foreign currency, under the 82nd Airborne, All- Around Atlantis, and Twilight of the Superheroes, as well as the collected short fiction of Deborah Eisenberg. She joins us today to talk about her latest collection the wonderful short story collection, Your Duck is My Duck. Thank you so much, Deborah, for joining us.
3: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me.
2: So I wanted to begin, I think, with the first story, because it shares the title of the book, Your Duck is My Duck. It does. Would you quickly explain that phrase?
3: <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, it's taken from an ostensible Zen koan, which Somebody told me he had heard under some one circumstance or another, and I looked it up. I was so flabbergasted by it that I looked it up, and it was, in fact, online for a while, but then when I looked it up, again, it had disappeared. I guess things can do that. At any rate... It really cannot be an actual Zen koan, I would think, partly because it's extremely simple-minded and partly because it is an endorsement of extreme selfishness, or at least it is as I interpret it and as it's used in the story. It goes something to the effect of the Zen master is talking to his acolyte, I can't remember what they're called at this moment, and he says, well, here's the riddle about the duck trapped in a bottle. How do you get the duck out of the bottle? And at any rate, the answer, the Zen master's answer is, it's not my duck, it's not my bottle, it's not (laughs) So that's what the title of the story and the title of the book comes from.
2: And in the story, this first story, Your Duck is My Duck, it involves an artist, a female artist who is invited to a sort of a kind of a residency that turns out to be not quite what she expected. It's in an island nation at the house of two very, very wealthy people. And it sort of comes up in the middle of her stay there where she overhears the husband of one of her her patron of sorts sort of say this to some other, I think, lawyers is who he's talking to. And the thing that struck me about the story is that it you rarely read stories about art and money and the relationship between the two. What brought you to this subject?
3: Oh, I have no idea, really. I have no idea what gets me to anything. But, of course, money is frequently on my mind, and so is art. But I suppose I'm rather preoccupied at the moment by noticing and when I say the moment I'm speaking of you know a decade or two noticing the extreme degree to which virtually everything is commodified and even impulses private impulses are commodified somehow it's it's very frightening to me how hard it is for people to lead an autonomous life. And I suppose there are a lot of different factors at play, but it really is disturbing. So I suppose that that was an element. It also just amused me to think of broke artists all over the world just trying to get a moment of peace and a moment to work in. And there are, of course, wonderful, wonderful residencies, at least in our country, I imagine elsewhere, too. And I happen to be enjoying one at this very <laughs> moment, but this was not so much residency as an invitation from a couple who had something to gain from the presence of
1: this artist. And what is that? Because something in the story that I picked up on, and actually in the following story too, is just the attraction that other people have to creative individuals and the kind of status afforded to them, but that often people who are drawn to the arts don't necessarily understand the process of art making, or that it can also be kind of an empty attraction. That It's not that they're such deep, thoughtful patrons of the arts as much as it's there's just something exciting about creative people that they want to surround themselves with?
3: Yes, I think that's true. I hadn't exactly thought of it in exactly that way, but that is certainly right. And in the first story, the couple is, well, you mentioned prestige and They have the vicarious prestige of owning paintings by this woman, and it's the collector's prestige, really. Mm -hmm. And I think in the second story, it's also a kind of vicarious or borrowed excitement or credential of some sort. It's a kind of glamour by association, and even if there's no glamour involved for the person who's actually making the art, having some type of ownership association with it confers a certain glamour or prestige.
2: I wonder, have you felt yourself used in that way?
3: (laughs) No, I certainly have not. You know, I make short stories, so they're not really... They don't carry that kind of cachet, I think. I suppose poets are sometimes cultivated. Really, painters are the artists who are most likely to be cultivated in that way because what they make has an economic value or a financial value. And, of course, actors do because there really is something uncannily amazing about acting and glamorous about actors.
1: And you used to act yourself. Is that right?
3: Not exactly. No, I'm really not an actor. I'm fascinated by it. But I did have a very, very large part in a play that coincidentally was written by the man I live with and adore. (laughs) And I really spent a lot of time learning to perform that part and a certain amount of time performing it. And it was a wonderful thing. I really loved doing it.
1: And as someone who's so, who writes so immersively in characters and who seems to, just from reading that I feel, whole worlds are evoked, the kind of work that you always hear actors talking about when they play a part, that they do all this backstory for their characters... Did you find that there was any correlation between acting and the work you've done writing?
3: I was absolutely shocked to find that there was none. (laughs) None whatsoever. I am always amazed by what excellent readers, good actors are. Of course, they have to be for the very reasons that you just mentioned, but they are spectacularly good readers. And I had thought... Well, I'm often a very good reader, and I'm a very good reader of this particular play. I think I understand this, this play better than anybody else could or does. Therefore, I will be able to perform it. Well, it turns out that that's just complete nonsense. Performing really has very, very little to do beyond the act of comprehension with reading. So I was very shocked to learn that I really had to learn how to perform. I had to learn how to perform that role and in fact I learned a little bit of performing beyond that. Not very much, certainly not natural, but it is just fascinating. I really recommend it to anybody just to try it.
2: Interesting. What took you away from it?
3: Well, I suppose if I turned out to be really marvelous at it, I would have kept doing it. But I think I'm a little too obedient, although there are many who would disagree with you <laughs> with me. But I think you have to you have to be very adventurous in a very specific way to do it well, and also, it was something that I did in my fifties. I didn't do it as a 20-year-old. And really what I do insofar as I do anything is right. I do my explorations on a piece of paper. So many
2: of the stories in this collection deal with particularly the relationship between mothers and daughters, but the relationships of families at large. And I wanted to ask you, what kind of family did you grow up in?
3: Well, I'm going to backtrack a bit there. I was surprised to learn that that was true, and I didn't notice it until a friend mentioned it to me. And I know that i had been similarly surprised about my first collection, to be told there were no families in it whatsoever, and that's true. So I suppose I've come back to family in a way. As to what sort of family I grew up in, my parents were first-generation American Jewish. And there's some confusion about first-generation and second-generation. My parents were first-generation Americans. Their parents were all born in Poland or Russia and Jewish. And they came to the United States quite poor. So my parents were upwardly mobile, very committed to education. And I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. And I have one sibling, a really wonderful older brother. And that's about what I'm going to tell you. Mm -hmm. So in
1: that way, there's some overlap there between the wonderful story, cross off and move on, which I think was... Perhaps my favorite in the collection just because I related to it so much because of my own family. My parents were also first-generation Jewish. And I think that story is interesting in the way that that you so deftly portray the kind of— that this young girl who has a contentious relationship with her mother, her mother is very cruel to her and tells her horrible things, but her mother is also putting all her ambition onto her daughter— that her mother is working so her daughter can go to college, so her daughter can have a better life, and why wouldn't there be hostility when you're living for your child in that kind of situation?
3: Yes, it's something that I think was very, very true of a certain generation of immigrants to America, and maybe particularly of Jewish immigrants, maybe now particularly of Asian immigrants the incredible pressure and incredible sacrifice entailed in educating the children and the pressure on the children to achieve.
1: And in that story, the mother is very funny. She cracks some great jokes, but again, she's she's cruel. She's so cruel to her daughter, and she tells her horrible things about herself, and they end up becoming estranged. But later in the story, there's this moment where... The daughter receives a letter from her cousin Maury, and his death is the catalyst of this whole story, explaining things he's found about the family and their relationship to the Holocaust and how many of their family members died in the Holocaust. And suddenly, again, you know, as you read that, you think, "Oh, why wouldn't she be cruel?" It gives you some insight into her character. I'm wondering if that's, something you come to naturally in a story, or if that's important for you to put in these kind of, not explanations, but moments of insight that a reader could have that would point to a deeper motivation for characters.
3: Oh, I suppose it just unfolded that way. I mean, I do think that in that story, the anxiety and fear that came with that whole generation of immigrants from Eastern Europe, from of Jewish immigrants, from the terrible pogroms and mass murders, the tremendous anxiety and fear and the anxiety of assimilating properly and not being conspicuous and behaving well. Every moment of the behavior and psyche of the character of the mother is just saturated with those anxieties and those pressures. So I wasn't thinking of it as a sort of structural gambit to lay that on at the end at all. It's just the way it worked out. And I suppose that it actually is parallel to the growing understanding of children Who grew up in such families that, you know, as a child, you really have no idea what goes into the way your parents behave. And as you get older and you simply learn more about them, it unfolds and makes more sense. And of course, I think children of anxious parents often have a great deal of. Compassion for their parents and actual pity for their parents, but they don't know why. And then they learn why.
1: But at the end of that story, or towards the end, there's this amazing moment with the daughter and her partner when he finally meets the mother, and he's saying, "You know, you should. This resentment you have towards your mother is is eating you alive. You need to let it go." And what she really wants to hear from him is just, "Your mother's a monster. You're completely right." <laughs>
3: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, No doubt he's correct, but it's not the best thing he could have said at the moment.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. Medea and Kate have been speaking with Deborah Eisenberg, author of My Duck Is Your Duck, a new short story collection. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation.
2: We have Chloe Aradis here today. Chloe is the author of Sea Monsters. That's her latest novel. And Chloe is here to recommend a book for us. Chloe, what book are you going to recommend?
4: Baudelaire's Prose Poems. It's a book, one of the books I've returned to the most over the past three decades now. There are 50 prose poems. They're called the Spleen of Paris or Paris Spleen, depending on how it's translated. Michael Hamburger uh, translated some of them. There have been many translators. Mm -hmm. So I think the prose poem is a perfect form between longer prose and the distillation of a poem. And one thought can just be unfurled over half a page, one page, two, three pages. And With Baudelaire's prose poems, they're mostly portraits of urban alienation. Mm-hmm. and solitude within a crowd, often. and an encounter between two different realities that often triggers an existential crisis in one of them. So one prose poem is a young, a rich boy staring beyond the gates of his castle. He sees a young pauper holding a pet rat, and he longs to be on the other side holding the rat and free. Or, well, self-portrait Baudelaire in his twilight because he wrote these in the last 12, 13 years of his life, of an aging acrobat in the wings, just sitting in the wings. And so he's an identification with more marginalized figures in society. They're so beautiful, often quite sardonic. And there's what we were saying earlier, of, of on the flip side of beauty, often cruelty or the grotesque. Mm-hmm. And so in the prose poems, it's very much highlighted.
2: But actually, I think two characters in your book talk about which they would rather be. They're looking at two wealthy girls in a cafe with a homeless father, and they oh exactly. And they yeah. both seem to choose that they'd prefer to be the homeless father and the two girls who are being taken care of.
4: Yeah, I hadn't thought of that.
2: Yeah, you see so, how yeah. So that's in that's in um, your novel Sea Monsters. How long have you been reading this book, or and how many times have you read this book, the Bottle air book?
4: Many times, probably the first time I think my father probably gave it to me when I was fourteen. And then, again at university and then I get a university and then I return to it every few years.
2: Well, that sounds wonderful. Would you tell us the title of the book again and the author?
4: Charles Baudelaire. And, well, there's different editions. So City Lights has 20 prose poems. Mm-hmm. Those are translated by Michael Hamburger. Then there's, I can't remember the other editions. But anyway, they've been translated many times into English over the years.
2: And uh, do you
4: usually read them in French or in English? I like having the bilingual edition in that way. It's... Very satisfying, and it's a strange interface between you feel like nineteenth-century France and then, well, modern English. But somehow, um, just having that interface in the book conjures up, uh, I don't know, strange tension.
2: Thank you so much, Chloe. Thank you. We have been speaking with Chloe Aridjis. She is the author of Sea Monsters. <laughs>
0: You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour. We now return to Medea and Kate's conversation with Deborah Eisenberg, author of My Duck is Your Duck.
2: It's interesting that you say that it seems that you had returned to family and that they don't make sense at first, make sense as you get older. Do you think that is why you return to the subject of family in this book? Have have they started making sense to you?
3: It's odd. I mean, now that you ask, I wonder. I actually feel it started making sense to me in my adolescence. I mean, I just had to figure it out because it was extremely difficult and painful. So I did, and then at a certain point, I'd say in my mid-20s, I just decided to put it behind me. I thought, okay, you know, I... You know, I just don't need to think about this any longer, and I want to lead an autonomous life as an adult, and I can do that, so I'm just not going to think about it any longer. But I suppose maybe it really lost its paralyzing venom for me, and maybe, you know, it was just easier for me to reflect on. I don't really that story that particular story that we were just talking about that you like that is as close to autobiographical as i think i've ever come well almost there are a couple of stories in among all of my stories that have a biographical element but that might be the closest i've come and i don't really know why now but I suppose maybe it was just a sort of little s- salute, and in a way, a sort of odd tribute um, <laughs> to my very funny mother.
2: The character in the story is is very funny. I thought the funniest part is um, her sister in law is being buried, and she can't hear what the rabbi is saying. She asks her daughter to tell her what the rabbi is saying. She says the daughter says, "You know, well, she was a wonderful woman, beloved by all." And the mother says, my God, they're burying the wrong woman. (laughs) And I thought that was a very funny joke.
3: I think it's a very funny joke, too. And I have to say that I cribbed it from my mother, (laughs) although it wasn't said by my mother in those circumstances.
2: Do you mind if I ask you what the pain of adolescence was for you and what spurred you to sort of start figuring out your family um, at such a young age?
3: Well... You know, I don't believe in secrets, so, well now I do believe in secrets because nobody has any, (laughs) but I grew up in a time when everything was a secret, and I think it's kind of helpful to say true things if you can, so, I mean, helpful to other people, presumably. So, I'll just say that I was not very good at fitting in, I think like most writers, for many writers, I was just a complete weirdo. And I grew up in a very conventional world with the anxieties that we were speaking of earlier about conforming. And I just, I couldn't, I didn't, I was not good at really anything. I mean, anything. And I looked completely different from everybody that I was growing up around. I mean, I, it, it was not until I came to New York that I ever saw people who looked like me, mm. except for my father's family. And I just could not do anything right. And I was a concern and sorrow to my parents, really from the get-go. and. I really had to do some thinking about what, in fact, was so appalling about me. Was I really that appalling? And why, you know, why was I so frequently in trouble? And why was I considered always to be falling short? I had to think about that a lot Mm -hmm. in order really to stay alive because it was sort of, really terrible. But, you know, it really is not true, I think, of any human being that he or she doesn't measure up to being a human being. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of look into the criteria.
1: So when you started writing, did those feelings of kind of being less than or not measuring up ever complicate your writing process? Because it seems like, you know, you have to have confidence to be able to think you have enough to tell people that they'd want to listen.
3: Yeah, I think that it really does help to have that kind of confidence. I would say it still complicates my writing process, although it might constitute my writing process. (laughs) Uh It might be one reason I'm so slow, and it might be one reason that Well, it might be two reasons why I'm so slow. One, just stark terror. (laughs) And the other that really nothing seems right until I get it. Very, very, very locked in. And I sometimes read fiction writers who are much, much freer than I am. And I find it kind of exhilarating to read. But I often feel that I'm kind of lacking what I read lacks a sort of very firm foundation. So maybe there there can be a, a kind of trade off and I don't think that I'll ever have that kind of real freedom that some writers have.
2: Is there a writer that you read to feel that sort of exhilarating My partner has recently been reading Moby Dick and was so, and had never read it before. And, you know, I recommended that he read Madame Bovary after because it's one sort of messy, rollicking novel and then another that is just completely perfect. Is there somebody that you turn to for that kind of experience?
3: Gee, you know, not that I can think of. Although, oddly, Madame Bovary has been on my reread list rather urgently. And I was talking about that with somebody else just two days ago.
2: Oh, that's so funny. Um, uh-huh. I reread it recently, and it's it's better the second or third time around, I think. <laughs> um, it's better. Wow.
3: Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I loved it the first time around, it, and I was old enough to read it. I mean, I never read it when I was too young to read it, but I'd love to. I, I mean, I read it, I would say, maybe in my early 30s, first. Now I'm in my 70s, and I'd love to see what it's like. It's so interesting rereading things because the book stays the same, but you change, so you get a kind of index of your changes.
2: And you also get a sense of what your memory retains and what your memory lets go, which is always sort of an interesting thing to get a glimpse into because, you know, we otherwise have no sense of that really happening. Exactly.
1: Yeah, you know the the collection is interesting because there there's a formal range in it, and some of the more experimental formal stories come later, so they're kind of yeah. jolt you like, wow, I didn't I didn't know that was coming. And when you're going to write a story like that, that is, you know, might have these like kind of inner titles within it, or it's like just formally different than than what you're often writing. Do you um, plan that out from the get go? Is that happen just instinctually? Or how does that happen?
3: I never plan anything. I never start with anything and I never plan anything. I have to plan retrospectively and retroactively. I have to get things into shape after, make little tiny adjustments after I've written something. But you're quite right that the two formally inventive stories were the last two to have been written. The book ends with an earlier story. Um, But the two very formally bizarre, you might say, stories were the last two written. And I was the, the strangest or the most least conventional, whatever you'd call it, was the very last to be written. I was really astonished to find myself... Having written it, I had no plans to write anything like that. I'd never written anything like
1: that. May you just tell us and, a little bit about that story, just for readers who haven't seen the collection.
3: Oh, maybe you should tell us a bit about it because I think <laughs> I know more about it than I do.
1: So, is this the story with the with this girl who is lo- yeah. is losing her grasp on language and goes to a treatment facility?
3: Yes, ostensibly she's losing her grasp on language, but in fact she may be the only one in the story with a real grasp of language, but yes. Mm-hmm. And it's written in little sort of micro chapters, and it is, it's not exactly in a future, and it's not exactly in the present,
1: Mm -hmm. But it's
3: in some sort of parallel present, I would say.
1: And what spurred that story for you?
3: Well, oddly enough, I had the title. That's never happened to me either. The title of the story is The Third Tower. And I just suddenly thought somebody should write a story called The Third Tower. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, maybe I will. So <laughs> Might as well be me, huh? It. Yeah.
2: <laughs> we were just talking about reading as you get older. So actually, maybe this would be an interesting subject to end with. What about writing as you get older? Has that changed for you? I mean, so with The Third Tower and the story before it merge, they's, they're both yeah. about a language, actually, um, about yeah. losing language, about losing a grasp on what it does and what it can do. Has your experience in writing changed? Has your experience of language changed?
3: I'm not sure my experience of language has changed. Inevitably, my experience of writing has changed because I've changed and the world has changed. One's head is filled with the world, really. And naturally, I know more about it than I used to. And it. so my knowledge of it has changed very, very much. My understanding of my place in the world has changed radically, I suppose. Yeah, how so? Well, you know, in the infancy, of course, you're at the center of it. And a big preoccupation in my books, I think, is what it means to be... A person from a disproportionately powerful country and a person from a disproportionately wealthy country who is really the beneficiary of systems which are terribly unfair to most of the people on the planet. What does that mean? And it's something I've become increasingly aware of through my adulthood. And it's, of course, increasingly disturbing or horrifying. And so also, of course, as we endanger the planet more and more viciously, one's place in regard to the planet changes. So I would say probably for most writers, writing gets harder, I'm sorry to say, as you Mm -hmm. get older because you've done the stuff that you can do and you're out way in deep water, Um, but also your position in regard to what it is that you aspire to do changes and perhaps amplifies.
2: Well, thank you so much, Deborah Eisenberg, for speaking with us today.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Now I'd like to ask you many questions. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, I'll do that off Well, let's do that. Yeah, we can do that (laughs) off air. So we have been speaking with Deborah Eisenberg. Her latest collection of short stories is called Your Duck is My Duck. Thank you again, Deborah. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.